0: Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
1: At that point, all Muslims became societal pariahs. And being Black, you already feel some sense of being marginalized. Now I'm going to add to it. But I was really struck by how universal the message was. Remember your faith, being your best self, being a reflection of your religion when you interact with other people. I had grown up thinking Islam was different, and I was surprised at how common the themes were. I could separate the zealots from the Arabs that I saw, the Chinese Muslims that I knew, the African Muslims, what I experienced was just a world apart from that, and I wanted to be a part of it. My name is Jason, and I am a modern minority.
2: Welcome to Modern Minorities.
3: This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different.
2: I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City.
3: And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. A lawyer. He lives out west. <laughs> he's black.
2: Yep. Yep. And he's a Muslim. Not a very common combination of things either, huh?
3: I mean the lawyer thing for sure. No. Uh, <laughs> no, um, you know, so this this month we're airing episodes with various Muslim American guests because we want to hear their story, cause it's unique, but at the same time, there's so much that we all have in common. And I think that's the thread of this show. And what's funny about it is, I was texting, as we were preparing for this month of Muslim American guests, I was texting all my friends. I was like, yeah, we can get Egyptian Americans. We can get Pakistani Americans. We can get Indian Americans that are Muslim. But are there any Black Muslims? So I asked my Black friends. (laughs) (laughs) And we met Jason through our past guest, Stefan. And as I was having a phone chat with Stefan, or sorry, I was having a phone chat with Jason, who, was a little nervous about this weird guy doing a podcast and wants to ask me about being a black Muslim. I was like, Oh, it's cool, man. I've, I've talked to Muslim people before. I got this buddy of mine. He's Egyptian. He even came on my comic book podcast and he's out in LA. Used to live in New York. He's like, it sounds like you're describing my brother-in-law. Turns out (laughs) Jason is friends of two of my friends and neither of those friends know each other. And it was a great fun conversation
2: it was great it was really great and it's just i love how small the world is and how we're all connected in the in the most random ways but jason was very open with us about his journey of how he became muslim because he didn't he didn't grow up in a family that was and we asked him a lot of hard questions and a lot of silly ones and he was totally open to answering all of them so i thoroughly enjoyed our conversation with jason
3: Jason, welcome to the pod. Thanks for joining us today, man. Thanks for having me. So Jason, we have more than a few mutual friends in common, but we like to ask all of our guests this. Where are you from?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I'm kind of boring compared to some of your other guests. I'm from a small city called Inglewood, California, born and raised. If you've ever watched the show on HBO Insecure, it's heavily set in Inglewood, and that's where I grew up.
3: Now, do people ever ask you, where are you really from?
1: I have been asked if I was French because oh. of my last name. And that creates an awkward dynamic because I've never been to France. And so, <laughs> How do you respond then? Do you yeah, just what like,
2: do you say? You're like, no, I'm not.
1: <laughs> I say the people that owned my dad's side of the family were from France.
2: <laughs>
1: and then there's kind of an awkward pause oh, and then man. I kind of... Laugh to diffuse it, but I mean, that's just, that's where the name came from. So I just, (laughs) yeah, so there's that.
3: Well, can you tell us an early story from your childhood? Maybe anything humiliating, the more humiliating, the better.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So many to choose from. Let's see. Well, I guess an interesting fact, I was born with a club foot. And so, when I was probably nine months old, I had a surgery to kind of correct that. And so, my entire life, I've had one foot that's about two sizes smaller than the other foot. So, my regular shoe size is 12, the other one's a 10. And I just, I just had a little foot. Just It was just kind of, I took it as, as fact, as like, as gravity, and probably in my entire life, I've played sports, basketball, football, baseball, not baseball, basketball, soccer, a little bit of football. And then in 2016, I was playing basketball and I got kicked in the back of the heel and it was excruciating. And it turns out that no one was there to kick me, actually tore my Achilles. Oh, and man. so, yeah, and when I met with the orthopedic surgeon, I explained to him about the club foot and he saw, he could tell from the scars on my ankle. And he was kind of amazed. He said, you've been living your whole life with basically one and a half legs. Like, I'm surprised this hasn't happened to you sooner. And I remember all throughout my competitive life, any sport, it was always difficult for me to do things with my right foot. If I had to plant on it or like shooting a left-hand leg, you jump off your right foot and things like that. And I was kind of like blissfully ignorant that I had this limitation. It wasn't until I was almost 40 years old when the doctor was like, you know, you have like your calf is half the size of your other one. You only have a third of the Achilles tendon in here. Like he started saying all these other things. And it was kind of like the end of the usual suspects where I started playing back all of the challenges I've had playing sports and I was like, "That's why, like, I never knew it. But I think had I known it, I may not have been as competitive, or you know, tried to play as many sports as I had in the past." And so,
3: well, what I love about the
1: usual suspects
3: analogy is because I was trying to thread as like, "Well, how did you get away with something at the end?" But if anything, the the prize at the end of it was you got away with trying harder, which you might not have done if it was yeah. just kind of if things came natural to you.
1: And like I said, I have played sports from five up until that injury i mean i had like a good 35 year run
2: that's amazing
1: if i had like i said if my parents had been hey you can't do this because you have you have a a weak foot or a weak right foot or anything like that i think it would have not only my confidence but i think it also would have kind of diminished the quality of life because sports have always been a big part of my life. I mean, now I watch them, even though they're heartbreaking as of last night, but it's just I don't know. That's so, amazing. That's one story. Let's see. What else? So many embarrassing stories. Well, what'd you want to be when you grew up? You mean other than the professional athlete? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm guessing it was an attorney. So. No. Like I said, I always dreamed of being a professional athlete. All right. And then my, but I mean, that's kind of like a fantasy, just like being an Avenger. Yeah. For what
2: sport in particular?
1: Oh, basketball. Basketball is my favorite sport. Cool. Even though I'm, I'm short, but still, I always loved basketball. But growing up, I would watch legal shows. I remember the first one I watched was a show called LA Law. And I loved the show. I didn't really understand what the lawyers did, but I was kind of attracted to the reverence that they had that all the characters had for them. And then my father, he was involved in some real estate dealings, and one day I went with him to meet a man in a office. I remember it was very stuffy and kind of everybody seemed really important. And it seemed like my dad talked to him for less than an hour. And then he wrote him a check. I didn't see how much the check was for. But when we got in the car, my dad said, kind of explained, like, oh, I had to meet with this man. He's a very important man. And that whole interaction cost me $500. And I was like, oh, like, he might as well have said $5 million. Right. Yeah. And I was like, what? Who is he? What did he do? He's like, he gave (laughs) me advice and he's a lawyer. And my dad was always like, lawyers are the apex predators of society. They can take down anyone from a president to a policeman and all this other stuff. And so I was kind of, oh my God. And then when I got to college, I guess I kind of had this impression lawyers only came from Harvard, Yale, or Stanford. And so I didn't go to either of those schools. I was kind of Insecure about trying to go to law school and things like that. I had met my wife and I kind of wanted to. I mean, I got a degree in political science, but I wanted something a little more substantial to basically be worthy of being with her. I applied to law school. I took the LSAT, applied to law school, got in, and I haven't really looked back, but yeah. So that's kind of how I, my introduction to. Being an attorney, and that's how kind of how I ended up where I am now.
3: Well, I want to back up a little bit back to childhood, and it's this kind of a leading question for one of the reasons that brought us together today. But what was the role of religion growing up for you with with mom and dad? Were mom and dad religious a lot, not a lot, somewhere in between?
1: Uh, That's interesting. So my mother grew up traditional Baptist, sang in the choir, just kind of the stereotypical black. Religious upbringing my father on the other hand his family's from louisiana and so they were raised catholic Mm -hmm. And my dad Hated going to church Absolutely hated it.
3: Why do you think that is is that because of how mom and dad his mom and dad framed it or was just something about the church?
1: It was how I think it was it was, I mean, Catholic mass is long. It's, yeah. it is eating up your entire Sunday and they had to go to Sunday school and things like that. And I think it just kind of soured him on the whole, on just going to church in general and waking up early. He hates doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think, and my grandmother, his mother was very strict about, you will go to church, you will go to Sunday school, you will be an altar boy, like all that stuff. And so I think when he had his own family he just did not want to impose that. And so we would go to church on Christmas most years and maybe Easter and that was about it. But also for him to marry my mother who was not Catholic was a big issue and I know that prob- that caused some friction between my father and my grandmother. And then I know my mother may have felt like slighted by my grandmother because she was a Catholic. But Mm. by the time I came around, either I was too young to appreciate it or what have you. But my mother loved my grandmother to the day she died. I mean, her love for my grandmother survived even past my parents' marriage. So... But so to kind of explain that, I didn't grow up very religious. I mean, if you had asked me, I'd say I was Christian without really understanding or appreciating what it meant. Just kind of a default thing, right? Exactly. And I, I believe I was baptized in infancy, but that's secondhand knowledge. I Obviously, I don't remember. And so, well, yeah, so that's how, I mean, I guess that's the role that religion played in the house growing up was that not a very big one.
2: That's great. So, you're on this show today with us because yes. you're not Catholic. <laughs> and no, you are Baptist, Baptist. Baptist. And you're not Baptist, <laughs> and you're Muslim. I and am. so, tell us a little bit about how that happened.
1: So, I was attending UCLA. I wasn't an engineer, but all of my friends were engineers. And so, there was this center where all the engineers, all the minority engineers would hang out. And I started meeting my roommates and my friends there. And then I met my wife. Well, obviously not at the time, but I met my wife and she kind of in talking to her and meeting her, she started bringing up that she would go to these, basically to me, she would go to church on Fridays mm-hmm. on campus. Well, can, was- can you unpack that a little bit? You said minority
3: engineer. So, cause I don't believe your wife is black so is my what does minority engineers mean at ucla because that alabama is just a bunch of black engineers with a handful of indian people I <laughs> so went engineering
1: school? there's a group called Nesby, which is a national yeah yeah society of black engineers i'm probably messing that up but they had a group or i guess they had an area or an office in this engineering building and so when I met minority engineers, I mean, there are Asian engineers, there was every kind of engineer, but a group of black engineers would be in the same office every day. My wife is not black; she's actually Egyptian. And so but she would be there hanging out with all the same engineers with my own roommates and stuff like that. So that's how when I say minority engineers, I'm specifically talking about Nesby. But yeah, so yeah. That's how I started. That was my introduction to, I guess, Friday prayer or Juma. Okay. And so she would invite me to come and I was, I didn't have class on Fridays. Oh, go ahead. Why do you think she invited you?
2: Because they liked each other. (laughs) (laughs) That's not
3: one of my moves though. Like my move is, (laughs) hey, you want to watch a Kevin Smith movie?
2: (laughs) She's like, I like this guy. Let me see if he's going to come to to temple with me or to mosque with me.
1: (laughs) I don't think that she was, oh, let me, I don't think she was proselytizing. I think she was trying to share her culture. And so I was like, oh, Friday church seems the most difficult church to get people to (laughs) go to, like people that want to go on (laughs) Sunday. Right. But it's like in the middle of the day, you still have the rest of your weekend. And there's also, I think there's a Muslim comic that said, how it prepares you for the weekend. <laughs>
3: <laughs> if <laughs> like anything if it guards you
1: from the sin, that's a burden. Exactly, exactly. Like, oh, let me pray in anticipation of the weekend. Whereas Christians, they have to repent for everything they did on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs>
2: right, right, right.
1: So I went a couple of times and I did not like... I would go with her and then she'd be like, okay, well, you go sit up there with a the whole bunch of people you don't know who aren't going to speak English. And I'm <laughs> going to go back here with the women. And I was kind of like, this is this is a terrible date. Yeah, you're <laughs> like, this we is were talking not a to good date.
3: Desk, no. And it's a pretty obvious thing to me. But just for our listeners, if you go to a Hindu temple, it's going to be mostly Indians, right? If you go to a Catholic church, well, that that you might see Italian Catholic church, et cetera. But with Islam, it's a worldwide Religion, And so there are Egyptian, there's Egyptian Juma, there's Arab Juma, et cetera, et cetera. So were you going to an Egyptian mosque? You were the black guy at Egyptian
1: mosque? No. So this was on campus. So Uh, you had-
2: Oh, interesting.
1: You had Africans, you had, I mean, Lebanese people who to me- Looked white. They did. And I had a lot of Persian friends who I didn't know were Persian. Growing up in Inglewood, there was white, black, Asian, and Hispanic. And so I tried to put these people in the framework of what I grew up in. So I thought Persian people, were like, oh, are they Hispanic? But then I heard them speak to each other. I was like, that's not Spanish, even though I don't understand Spanish. That's not it. And so it was just kind of interesting because I didn't expect there just I didn't expect to see people as black as me there and things like that. So it was kind of a whole range of people at the mosque and a a lot of Asian people too, which was really surprising to me. What was your
3: first impression of going to mosque or going to Friday prayer?
1: I thought it was very, not, I don't know to say oppressive. I just was really confused as to why we couldn't sit together. And it wasn't as, I mean, the organization, they had the men in the front Closer to the Imam who was giving the sermon or the hutba and then all the women were behind us. Kind of, it felt like a civil rights violation. Like they were felt like Rosa Parks, and so
3: yeah. In yeah, Hindu temple, it's interesting. Even at just like events and dinner parties, the men sit on one side of the room and the women sit on the other side of the room. And as a kid, and they always shove the kids to the front so we can't goof off. But it was weird. It was weird. There's literally this carpet that goes down the middle. And men and women were were bifurcated. I'm
1: okay with it because I
3: grew up with it, but it's still a thing that kind of is a little weird to me.
1: It is. It's odd. And in going to other mosques, typically the children are all with the women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah. so, little
3: kids, yeah. yeah.
1: Occasionally you have a, a father and son in the front, but most of the time the women are in charge of watching the children. So that was probably the biggest thing. But then I was kind of hesitant to bring that up until we had gone a few times because I didn't want her to feel like I was attacking her culture or her religion and things like that. But it just, that was probably my first impression. Then I was really struck by, I mean, with the few times I had been to church, how kind of universal the message was. I mean, remember your faith and being your best self and being a reflection of your religion when you interact with other people and things like that the universality of the message was kind of striking because i had grown up thinking islam was some kind of different just i don't know just they don't worship god they worship allah they don't eat bake it was just all the things that were different and i was surprised at how common the themes were. And then the more I went, I started recognizing, you know, some of the stories and things like that. And so that was probably just the realization that Muslims aren't some foreign, just something that you just can't relate to at all. It was very relatable. And What what about it was relatable? What were the things that made you feel more at ease? Well, finding out that Allah and God are 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 the same, how meshed, intermeshed with stories from the Bible are in the Quran. I went to a Catholic high school. I think that was kind of my dad did that for my grandmother. But one of the things that we talked about, because you had to take a religion class, was that this is surprising at the Catholic school, was that no one should be between you and God. And that the priest is kind of the conduit, but a priest is still a man, and so and therefore he's fallible. So that kind of, there should be no intermediaries, which is the same thing that I was hearing at the first few times I attended Friday prayer. And so that kind of, oh, it's the same. It's it's more, they're more similar than they are different. Not, oh, I think if religions focus more on the similarities, but I think if everybody focuses on the similarities, whether yeah. you be, I think people in general, I think that would be better for humanity as a whole. But anyway, sorry, I kind of digressed. No, man, no, but yes.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great point. You found a common thread, and it it felt familiar because it was at the core of it. It was very similar teachings, and at the very, I mean, at the base of it, it was all the same values, right? And I think most all religions really are very similar in that way.
1: Yeah, I mean, treat people well, don't backbite. I mean, all the same th- things you teach right. your children. And so...
2: Be a good person, for God's sake.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Literally, literally, literally. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> My rule of thumb is don't be a dick.
2: Yeah, <laughs> right, right.
1: <laughs> And so, yeah, so that's kind of the first, I guess, path, first steps on the path towards becoming Muslim. But I didn't realize that that's where I was going. I was just, oh, this is cool. Like, I'm getting some culture, part of the reason I'm at this big school is to meet different people and experience kind of how Persian people get down, how Chinese people get down, and I'm supposed to share that with them. But as our my relationship as our relationship grew, at one point I could feel it getting serious and I knew from what I knew of her and meeting her siblings and things like that that There is no way if we were going to have a future together, a life together, that she would not marry a non-Muslim. And we would start, we would start to have these talks probably towards graduation. But a sticking point for her was that I could not convert for her. She was like, "This has to be your decision. Like, it can't be, it can't be for me." She was like, she basically was straight up I can't carry that for you. And so I kind of digested that. And I mean there were some uncomfortable conversations. I remember at one point her she being upset because she was basically said that my entire family was going to hell because they weren't Muslim. And I was whoa.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I was like, well My entire family thinks your entire family is gone. Oh, man. (laughs) So. Oh, no. They can sort it out together down there, I guess.
0: (laughs) Right. right.
1: (laughs) And so there was a lot of growth on her part in the sense that we would have talks like if a baby was born, it was never shown Islam or exposed to Islam. And so they never said the Shahada, like, do they still go to hell and things like that? So she kind of. She evolved in her thinking. And I mean, I think ultimately, this is right around 9-11. I think I said the shahada right after 9-11. I'm
3: sorry, for myself and everyone else, what is that? Is that the kind of conversion? What is the shahada?
1: So that's where you basically declare that you're Muslim. Gotcha. Oh. That's the conversion. And so I'm doing this, like I said, in the eve when Islam is at its most most popular. And so that was kind of So
2: how did you know, right? Because I'm hearing, I'm a romantic, so I'm hearing this and you two meet on campus and you are flirting and getting to know each other and you agree to go with her to mosque because it's a Friday activity and maybe you can go and hang out after or something. Exactly. And then it gets serious and she says to you, we can't go farther unless you are Muslim, but I don't want you to convert for me. How do you know for yourself, that it's truly your decision and that it's not hormones or falling in love or this really cute girl <laughs> that you're with and you're really excited about. How do you know it's truly your decision?
1: Well, just w- one point. She never said, Oh, I won't marry you if you're not Muslim. She never said that. It okay. was my understanding with evaluating her, her relationship with her sisters, her relationship with her parents, and things like that. I knew. That it would be a hurdle for her. Not saying I don't think I'm so great that she should abandon her family. I just I wouldn't want her to do that. Just the same right, way she wouldn't right, want me to right, convert. Right. Convert for her. So but it took a while, and part of it was I think had I been more religious, had I been Going to church every Sunday with my parents growing up, I think it would have been a tougher decision. But I felt like it spoke to me, it made sense to me. And I felt that by being Muslim and not having it be kind of the default, it was something I was committing to. Does that make sense? Whereas like I wouldn't take it for granted. So and it's like it was a
2: conscious of, choice. It was a it was a deliberate choice that you were making.
1: Exactly. And so that way I try to, I mean, I think everybody falters at some point, but it is something I committed to. And it's part of how I self-identify. I'm Jason. I'm black. I'm Muslim. I'm an attorney. That's kind of how I see myself. It was kind of a, a slow progression, but I felt that also if, not, if anything was going to derail it and make me just say, no, I don't want to be a part of this, it would have been 9-11. And I didn't feel that. I felt that what happened then Say
3: more. Say more. Why? Why would nine eleven have derailed it for you? Potentially. I know it didn't.
1: I think that I mean, I think at that point all uh, Muslims became societal pariahs. And I think being black, you already feel some sense of being marginalized. Now I'm gonna add to it. I just I think that would have been been hard but it didn't for whatever reason it just didn't it didn't make me hate the religion i could separate the zealots from what i saw the arabs that i saw the chinese muslims that i knew the african muslims that like it just what i saw on that day and what i actually encountered what i experienced
3: every other day yeah
1: yeah it was just just a world apart from that and i wanted to be a part of it i also liked The joy. I feel like a lot of times minorities carry the weight of being a minority every day. And when I think that weight gets lifted in jubilant celebration. So, in Aid or both Aids, I think the joy that I saw that I participated in was attractive and it, it reminded me of how I felt. When I'm with my family, when we're celebrating a birthday or any kind of celebration, I feel like a marginalized people, they go hard. They go ham. I liked it.
3: I want to ask another question. Yes. On a scale... (laughs) I feel like I've asked every Muslim guest this month, so I apologize. (laughs) Let's go. On On a scale of zero to 10, I think I when we talked on the phone, I asked you this, like zero being Muslim in name only, right? And 10 being... Super orthodox, follow all the rules, down to the letter of the Quran. Where does Jason fall? That's a good question. You're being judged.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly.
2: For all the world to hear.
1: (laughs) I'd say I'm probably a five. I feel, I mean, I fast every Ramadan. I don't drink five times a day prayer. It just doesn't happen. I would imagine it's hard to do that in the courtroom. That would cause some harsh reactions. (laughs) And also with work, I just I can't go to Friday prayer. It just doesn't work logistically. But I try to be a good person. I know a lot of Muslims dread Ramadan. And I don't dread it. I look at it as Is it for the obvious reason? Oh, people are starving, yes. Uh, It is it is a challenge. But
3: I how many of you roughly how many of the Ramadans since you became a Muslim have you fasted?
1: I haven't missed one. I haven't missed a single one. Wow. That's great. And I feel like it would feel strange to not fast. It would just seem odd.
3: I think I would probably be a three because I would (laughs) totally be sneaking food, I think.
1: Yeah, but I mean, I think if you have to also put it in context, like you chose this. And so if I chose it, then why am I going to kind of... Not half ass it, but why am I gonna like take away from it or diminish it? Yeah. yeah. I chose this for me and I chose this for my kids and I mean Well part of any feel- part
3: of any religion, right? And even I would even say parenting is if you're gonna do it right, you have to lead by example. You have to show, not tell.
1: Yeah, I think I've noticed in the many years that I've been a parent that children learn far more from watching you than from listening to you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about that. So you didn't grow up in a household that was Muslim, obviously, right? So how do a lot of those things get passed down in your, in your household? And I ask that because my husband grew up Catholic and he's got memories of being an altar boy on Sundays, like just, just like you described. So church was like a whole family thing. It was, it was a big part of his childhood as much as it was a religion, if that makes sense, right? It was like a family affair. What does that look like in your house? Being that you're for you, you're kind of I'm learning you're leading by <laughs> yeah you're learning and you're leading by example.
1: When we pray as a family, which we typically do, we probably do it maybe more often during Ramadan than any time else. It's kind of weird as the man I'm expected to lead. But what's what I still don't feel comfortable with is putting my wife and my daughter in the back. But yeah. I think yeah. for my wife, it would feel uncomfortable to put, bring us up, if that makes sense. Because that's not how,
3: that's she was, how she was sense. raised, right? Exactly.
1: Right. So during Ramadan, it's probably the most Muslim time for the family. But my wife will decorate around the house. She puts up lanterns and lights. She has a sign saying Ramadan Kareem. She tries to, I guess, compensates. probably the best word to describe it, because during Christmas... It's kind
3: of. You can't escape it. Yeah. You can't exactly. escape it. There are trees up and down the street, right? Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, our neighbors and everything. My parents would put up lights for Diwali and then keep them up for Christmas. So, <laughs> yeah. kind of like fit in with the neighborhood. I want to ask another dumb question. I'm sorry, but I know the answer, but I think this is what makes Islam beautiful to me. There's no commercialization of it, or is there? Christmas, we're recording this on Easter, man. And, I'm not a Christian, and there were a bunny literally pooped out colorful eggs in my backyard today
1: <laughs> well, 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 Christmas funny, you know no. Christmas
3: is Santa Claus, even in if, I don't know if there's any commercialization in Hinduism in Chinese New Year's, there's a whole market of right. buying the things for yeah. the day. Does that exist around Ramadan and Eid or any of the holidays? any of the I hate to say commercialization, but have you observed any of that?
1: No, I thought it was odd that traditional Like for aid, children are supposed to get presents, but they also get a lot of cash, which Mm. is foreign to me. I couldn't imagine being nine years old and my grandparents giving me. $50. $50. Oh, versus. man, that's because you're not Asian. That's- yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's just, come, that's- come to
2: my house on Chinese New Year. Everybody Asian people, money.
3: <laughs> I'll um, tell you a, a fun story. The way we convinced all of our friends to give us cash when we got married, because that's what Asian people did. We didn't need stuff. We didn't need China. We just did a honey fund. <laughs> that's how we tricked all of our really? non-Asian friends to give us cash.
1: <laughs> nice. But no, I don't see a lot of commercialization. Now, I think maybe if we were in the Middle East,
3: where everyone's doing it, right? Yeah, exactly. That's interesting. Maybe
1: there's a bigger market for it, but I don't I don't see a lot of it. And
3: well do you think people put lights up so the same way your wife puts up lights, if you were to go to the mall in Dubai or in Cairo, there would be lights up for Ramadan then?
1: I imagine so. And, and the lanterns. Yeah. Yeah. There's little cutouts that my wife that my wife has the children color and then she makes Ramadan cookies like that are in the shape of a crescent. And what my that's awesome. brother-in-law has a Ramadan tree, which it looks like a Christmas tree, but it's, it's a crescent and he will decorate that. He'll put gifts under that. So, I mean, there's, there are, I mean, if you, if you want to spend money on it, I think there's, you know, they'll sell you anything. I haven't seen a lot of it, but I think that's also a fact or a consequence of living in a Christian nation.
3: I'm looking up these lanterns online right now. These are beautiful. Oh my God. Yeah. They can get Sorry, really Sharon, insane. these are way cooler than Chinese New Year's languages.
2: <laughs> I feel like I need to Google those now.
1: We got a couple when we were in Egypt, and so we brought those back. So I want to ask another question about your
3: relationship. So you became a Muslim. You guys got married. You have three kids. What was the reaction of her family of, never
1: mind the boy oh, that, that is, is becoming a, a Muslim, question.
3: but your Egyptian wife brought home a black man.
1: <laughs> to kind of explain that, I'll tell you about how I proposed. This was after I had converted. So her but family You knew- check
2: that box. That's good. Exactly.
1: Good you got like the t-shirt so you wore it over to their exactly. house, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so I had, you know, I was a car carrying member. Right. And I was in grad school. She was in, she was about to go to grad school, I think. And. I called her father. I had known her father. I'd met her father hundreds of times. Her father is a Sunday school teacher. And so when I was learning about Islam before converting, because I just didn't just kind of go to a couple of jummas and then decide I want to do it. Like I wanted to learn about the history of the religion and things like that. And so he was very open in teaching me about Islam. So I I would sit in his Sunday school class with like 12 year olds for a while. But anyway, so I reached out to him and I bought a ring with my mother's help. And I told him I needed to talk to him. And I think he, I mean, I guarantee he understood why I was coming to talk to him.
3: Who, Who were you at this point to him? Had you come over for dinner? What's the relationship? Yeah. Did
2: they know you were dating?
1: They knew I had a relationship with his daughter and they knew I was. I had gone to the same school that I was in grad school. They they knew a lot about me, but this is now real because I want to say before before this they would try to do the arranged marriage thing. So they would bring men. Oh,
2: over. you had competition, oh,
1: Jason. Oh, one hundred percent, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Wow, I just, I had to step my game up in the gym. <laughs> from
2: you had to <laughs> slay some dragons. You had exactly. to do the whole thing. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And so contacted her father. He told me to meet him at his office, which was... His turf. I'm sorry? His turf. His,
2: yeah, his yeah, territory. Exactly. He's like, come to my lair.
1: Basically. <laughs> and so I met him at his office. I wore some slacks and a polo shirt. And I kind of explained I wanted his permission to marry his daughter. And he was like, why? And I was like, I care for her deeply, blah, blah, blah. And he was like... But you guys are from different cultures. It was not an easy conversation. He challenged me on my, not only my commitment to his daughter, not so much as my commitment to Islam. I feel like he accepted and respected that. But it was a, like I said, two, two and a half hour conversation.
3: I want to ask a question about that because through friends who have married outside of the faith and, or not the faith, the same ethnicity, which is something Sharon and I did, one. Thing that the parents often bring up is well, what about the kids
2: yeah
1: did that come yeah. off well not to me but well kind of kind of let me, let me backtrack a little bit so after that conversation he didn't give me an answer whoa he said let me think about it and i think he said he may need to pray on it and so i kind of was left in limbo and what was interesting is that...
3: Did your girlfriend, then girlfriend, now wife, did she know you were going to have this conversation? Not at all.
1: Zero. So she you
3: and her no hadn't clue. talked about... <laughs> did she <laughs> know so you like, had wow. this conversation prior to this podcast? To being wow. Aired?
1: She does. We're not getting you in trouble. No, 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 no. She knows. And so the thing is, we were scheduled to go out the next day. And so my plan was to... Assuming this conversation, I expected to have a yes. And then I was going to propose the next day Well, I was kind of left in limbo. Was
2: she still living at home at this time? She was. Okay. I can imagine what happened next.
1: Oh, so she's plotting how to make some ruse so she can go out with me without her parents knowing the next day. And so we're kind of talking about it. She doesn't know I've had this conversation.
2: Wait, did they forbid her from seeing you for some period of time while he was thinking about it?
1: No, but it was no, but, but
3: that's what was. It was stealth dating. It was stealth dating. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I, oh, I know that's
2: right. Talking. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Okay.
3: She's she was going to the movies with her friend. She was exactly. uh, going to movies. I exactly. Exactly. Her friend just I, happened to be Jason. This guy. Exactly. I get
2: it. You know what? That wasn't actually clear to me until this moment, you guys. <laughs> it's
1: because you're a girl. <laughs> you're a girl.
2: <laughs> it's true.
1: <laughs> so whatever. We're trying to make our plans, and I say the next day. Probably around noonish, he calls me and gives me the okay, which <gasps> is blessing. Wow! So because my plan was, we're gonna go out and either we're going to get engaged or I was gonna break up with her because oh my God. all or it nothing. It just, it just. I mean, if he says no, she's not gonna go against him, and there's really no place for us to go.
3: Would that have been in the talking points? I That's would have never
1: point. told her. Oh. My plan wow. was to never tell her, just to say you know, this isn't working out and things like that. And I felt like oh that would have been better for her, that right. Right. her family didn't get in the way of us. I got in the way or I got cold feet. Or... You were such a good dude. Oh my god. I know. <laughs> I'm not I know. a saint, trust I me. I feel I'm like not. This, is,
2: this is the beginning of a <laughs> no, screenplay.
3: You're, yeah, is... you're, you're not a saint, but that speaks to character. Yeah.
1: I just felt like it was the best for her. But anyway. He agreed. And so she was trying to come up, like I said, with the ruse to sneak out. And I said, maybe just just tell your parents you're going to see me today. Like, just don't don't lie this time. And so she's like, well, I don't know. I don't want to blah, blah, blah. And I was like, just try it. And so they, of course, gave her a blessing to go out with me that day. So we went out to a restaurant out here called Gladstone's. And before we, our reservations were like at six o'clock, we stopped at a little park near the beach and kind of gave a little speech about um, our relationship and how it's progressed and things like that. Got down on one knee and pulled out the ring. And then she said, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And then she did not say yes. She says, do my parents know?
2: That's my dad, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Do
1: my parents know? (laughs) And I said, yes. Then she said yes, and then she called her parents, and then her parents were like cheering in the background and things oh, like awesome that. Dude. And so, like I had some reservations about how we would be treated by her family, and if my children would be treated any different than their cousins and things like that. No difference whatsoever. I mean, they have welcomed me with open arms, and I've never looked back. They're like I said, they're as warm and. Loving as anyone you'd ever meet. And I just can't believe he took a chance. Her father took a chance on me because I know when he moved his family from Egypt, he didn't plan for his oldest daughter to marry some black guy from Inglewood. But here we are. It's America, man.
2: (laughs) A beautiful story. I love that story. I'm glad you
1: enjoyed it. It did feel like that going through it. It was (laughs) nerve wracking and terrifying, (laughs) it was excruciating. I'm sure.
2: And then now that I know that there was a level of sneaking around, too, that it wasn't just...
1: Oh, what's interesting... Sorry, did me cut you off. No, that's okay. But my wife, is. she has a lot of Egyptian friends. And after we got married, there have been a number of interracial relationships in her kind of Egyptian community with Egyptian women marrying black
2: You're like the Jackie Robinson yeah, of the Muslim
1: community, my friend. You
2: you're a trendsetter. You guys started a trend
1: yeah, now it's like this pressure, like we have to stay together because uh, all these other relationships. (laughs) Because they're
2: looking up to us, we have to be the role (laughs) models. But but that is
1: is an
3: observation that I've made as well. When I was in school, and Sharon, we're all roughly the same age, right? Early 40s. But when we were in school coming up, dating people out of our race, our ethnicity, our religion, it was a weird thing to do. Because we didn't know who was going to settle down, what were serious relationships, what were just college dating. And now a number of us have settled down in relationships and it's more common. It's more acceptable. My parents see it more commonly now. Mm -hmm. And I mean that when I say that is America, man, even the whitest of the white, it's a Russian guy. You go back five generations, a Russian guy who married a Polish person scandal, right? right? Or an Italian who married a Jew scandal, but it is what it is. It's, The literal melting pot or the chili, as our friend Stefan said on this podcast. (laughs)
1: Mm -hmm. Steph. Yeah, no, I think it's beautiful. I think you shouldn't limit yourself. You should find, I don't know, I can't speak to my wife's conversations, but I remember when telling my parents, like, hey, I want to marry this Arab woman. I was kind of like asking my dad, what do you think about this? He's like, you're the one that got to be married to her, not me. So, (laughs) 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 Which is very pragmatic, but it's also, you're the one has to deal with all that comes with it. Right. Dealing with her family and things like that and her culture. And it's her accepting that she's going to have black kids and all that that entails as well. And so I think, I mean, at the end of the day, she and I against the world. So far, we've, we're hanging in there. You're winning.
2: You are. (laughs) And you've got three beautiful kids as a testament to that. We've been very blessed. That's awesome. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I feel like it was such a romantic ride in so many ways.
1: (laughs) No, the notebook, this was not.
2: (laughs) But there are multiple chapters in it though. (laughs) So I think, I think you're ready for speed round. Do you feel ready for speed round, Jason?
1: Absolutely not, but let's do it.
3: (laughs) Right answer.
2: (laughs) What is one thing about you that no one expects?
1: Other than the club foot? <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> For whatever reason, I like very fragrance or heavily fragranced body wash.
2: That <laughs> <laughs> You're going deep here. These are deep secrets.
1: Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite brand? I don't have like a brand loyalty, although the Old Spice ones are... They're very heavy on the perfumes or the colognes, I guess. But I mean, I'll use a cucumber melon (laughs) just as quickly as I'll use a dial men's gunmetal body wash or something
2: like that. Yeah.
3: I really thought you were going to give me some saffron oil, some Middle Eastern thing, (laughs) sandalwood.
2: (laughs) No. Patchouli. Patchouli.
1: (laughs) No, but my wife... Argan oil. (laughs) Moroccan argan oil, guys. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, but I have been known to steal my wife's body wash because <laughs> sometimes I want to smell like book <laughs> Yes, we're oversharing here.
3: That's that's what the show's about, man. We we butter you up with all the serious talk of religion and love just to get like your deepest darkest, so we can post that on the interwebs. What is a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to?
1: Ooh, let's see. Well, I mean, the easy answer is there's this movie called, I believe it's called Dope, about a kid growing up in Inglewood. Roughly, he's a little younger than me, but I mean, he he's growing up near this high school called Morningside High School, which is... Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. I remember it now. Yeah, yeah. yeah
1: down the street from where I grew up. If I had been still living there, I probably would have seen them film this movie. Like, I mean, it's he's living... Portions of my life less dramatic. My life is far less dramatic, but it's easy to relate to because, like I said, it's just all the same places, all the same interactions, all the same insecurities and things like that. I find that that the main character in that movie very relatable. In terms of a book, I don't read a lot of fiction, so that's probably a harder a harder task. But yeah, I guess the lead character in dope is probably the easiest answer.
2: That's great. What is your favorite mom dish?
1: <laughs> well, so probably smothered pork chops. <laughs> but I haven't mm. had them in, 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 in quite a while.
2: <laughs> Since you converted. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. But she'll do smothered chicken or smothered steak with rice. I what like is that, it smothered I like in? Ox- I got to ask. Brown gravy. And then I'm also like oxtails. Ooh, My mom oxtails. oxtails. Yeah. If I could have... I would have eggs, my mom's eggs, oxtails, and smothered chicken over brown rice. That would be my perfect meal with too much grape soda. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> Just it's delicious. Follow-up question, though.
3: What is your favorite mother-in-law dish?
1: Ooh, so my mother-in-law makes this dish called mashy which is traditionally, it's an Egyptian dish, which is rice wrapped in grape leaves. But I always find the grape leaves a little too bitter. And so she'll make it wrapped in cabbage. And I think it's called crumb. I like that. I like kufta, which is basically like a ground beef kebab. Almost. Yeah. And her lamb, her grilled lamb is probably my favorite. So that would be the grilled lamb, the kufta, and then the cabbage mashy would be my favorite. Nice. What's your least favorite food? In general, or just Middle Eastern?
3: In general, Vito writes, what's the thing that if it shows up on your plate, you can be like, nah, no, thank you. You can't pay me to eat okra. What? I don't <laughs> like a, hang on, hang on. Yes, I, that's I a I mean, You, you got grape soda, but
2: you don't eat okra? <laughs> right.
3: Come on.
1: <laughs> I don't like slimy food. I just can't.
2: How about when it's breaded in corn yeah, meal and fried?
1: Uh, I've never... Still not, this, huh? If they told me it was okra, I didn't eat it. <laughs> They'd have to pull it past me. I don't like potato salad either. All right. That's exceptional. Potato salad sucks. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Sorry.
2: Who's someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? Mm. Alive or dead?
1: Oh. Oh, that'd be... My mother's father. He died when my mom was 16. So... I never never met him, but hearing my mother tell stories about him, I think I would have liked to have met him and interview him and kind of as I mature the value of the experiences of older generations become far more valuable and you all of my grandparents have since passed on and I've lost that access because I'm sure they could tell stories. I know my father's father was it's kind of a card shark. <laughs> he used to gamble on Central Avenue when that was kind of the West Coast Harlem. I remember him showing me tricks with a deck of cards. And I imagined the stories he could tell and him flirting with the Negro Leagues and things like that. And those are just the kind of stories I knew as super young. And so if I could sit down actually with both my grandfathers and talk to them as, a, as an old man, I think that would be invaluable.
3: Jason, what does being a modern minority
1: mean to you? Can I just first say, I am so glad you changed the name. (laughs) I listened to Steph's. Way back when. (laughs) Yes. And everything he said about the model thing, I completely agreed with. So I really like the modern minority and I feel like it's very current and I feel like it doesn't age but i'm sorry
3: thank you no no you know what's funny about that we've talked about this a couple more than a couple of times but when sharon and i came up with the name for the show model minorities back in the day we we're like oh yeah we can say that we're asian we're allowed to we're going to take it back we're going to redefine it and every time a friend like steph a few others like matt would push back we'd like nah and we have our talking points and we'd agree to disagree and walk away and then people we didn't know started reaching out and pushing back and It's almost, while we do need to dismantle the model minority myth, we almost need to evolve it to the, because we are all modern minorities, no matter the color of your skin. I think the more we, I don't want to lead to kind of what your answer is, but I think the more we embrace that, know how we're more similar than we are different, the better it is. So what is that term? Why do you like modern minorities? What does it mean to you?
1: Well, just in comparing and contrasting, I think the old term, it kind of, by Participating in the podcast is kind of like a tacit endorsement of the term. And so you're kind of there's kind of a little bit of pretense that I am a model minority and I don't see myself as that. And so kind of to segue into the answer, I think it's somebody just trying to find, find a way, find a way through society. And it's not, I think, everybody wants the same things. They want safe, secure and good, safe and secure world for their children. And I think being a modern minority is recognizing who you are as a black Muslim man in America, but also taking into account how the world interacts with you and kind of equipping your children, and your family with the tools to successfully navigate that, that world as a Black Muslim woman as my daughter is going to be, as Black Muslim men as my sons are going to be, and keeping it pushing and not letting, not being paralyzed by my minority aspect. The fact that I'm a Black Muslim man in America doesn't mean that I can't go out and be an attorney and be the best attorney I can be. Just kind of being born with a club foot didn't stop me from pursuing all of my athletic endeavors to life. Does that it's make sense? Question.
3: Absolutely. Jason, I'm so glad we met and we have so many <laughs> friends in common. And I'm, I'm so about glad to call
1: safe. <laughs> you know I'm <laughs> going to call safe.
2: <laughs> and that's our show. Like what you
3: heard? Please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform.
2: Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three.
3: Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com.
2: You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you.
3: That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segel.
2: And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony.
3: Remember, we're all modern minorities out there.
2: We'll talk to you soon. That's ChumbaCasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. VGW Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.